Welcome to Audiophile from Nature. I'm Kerry Smith. This episode, how music helped make modern science and what one of the greatest scientists who ever lived owes to his musician father. I want to introduce you to someone. His name was Vincenzo and he lived in Italy. Uh, He lived mainly in Florence, sometimes also in Pisa. This is Marina Baldessera Pacchetti, who's a historian of science, here to help us tell Vincenzo's story. This is the early Renaissance in Italy, the mid-1500s. Vincenzo makes his living and supports his six or seven children, historical records differ, with music. He was a lute maker and uh, yeah, he, he also composed madrigals and, and, and sung. This composition is one of Vincenzo's. He played the lute all the time. Walking in town, riding a horse, standing at the window, lying in bed. He wrote that in his first book about lute playing. Vincenzo's life was music, but some scholars think he might have changed the course of science through his son. Vincenzo was uh, Galileo Galilei's father. Sometime in the year 1588 or 89, in his house in Florence, Vincenzo Galilei constructed a wooden box about the length of a piano keyboard and strung it like a guitar with a few strings at different tensions. These things are called monochords. Vincenzo made his to help answer a question. He was trying to find out what tensions in the strings and what lengths of string gave different musical intervals. Arguments raged about the way to measure these intervals. It was really the hot topic of the day. Most musical thinkers were obsessed with ancient Greek music, and the ancient Greeks were really into numbers. Ancient Greeks thinkers, beginning with the Pythagoreans, uh, started realizing that there was an intimate connection between mathematics, between the ratios of whole numbers, and the intervals of music. This is Peter Pesic, who studies and teaches music and science at St John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico. By intervals, he just means the difference in pitch between two notes. The fact that the simplest uh, intervals in music that are found pleasing and compelling by many, many people correspond to ratios of numbers to them was a revelation. So, for instance, uh, the interval 1 to 2 corresponds to the octave. The interval 2 to 3 to the perfect fifth, and 3 to 4 to the perfect fourth. But there were problems with this idea of imposing number onto music. There were cases where the numbers didn't really line up. A lot of the Greeks relied on this harmony of the world and particular ratios that were supposed to make pleasant sounds. There's a story about this, and the main character is the Greek scholar Pythagoras. The story goes that Pythagoras happens upon a blacksmith's workshop and finds to his joy that the hammers make sounds based on the ratios of their weights. A three-pound hammer and a six-pound hammer made an octave, for example. In the story, Pythagoras goes home, rigs up his own equivalent of a monochord, attaches weights to the ends of the strings, and finds the same relationships. This way, he replicated the patterns, the octave, the perfect fourth, and the perfect fifth. Perfect numbers for perfect sounds. But unfortunately, the story is semi-mythical. No one knows if it really happened. Vincenzo 
was not the first to realize that there was something terribly wrong uh, with the story, uh, that, that it couldn't have been true, but he made more and more experiments and realized that the factor of tension, of the tension of the strings, which is a really a physical phenomenon, had to be taken into account. It was not an effect that, that, that operated as simply as people thought. So Vincenzo actually conducted these experiments that disprove the ancient Greek doctrine of the Pythagoreans. With Vincenzo we have a first idea of like having to look for physical properties of the system uh, before we can apply numbers to them. It was an empirical demonstration of the relationship between strings and their sounds a first foray into the discipline of acoustics. It seems very important at that point that music itself became a science. And more than that, maybe, just maybe, it was the impetus for Vincenzo's famous son, Galileo Galilei, to become one of science's greats. People like Stillman Drake have speculated that his son Galileo, who clearly watched his father doing all this, may have been deeply influenced by the thought that you do not merely observe nature, but you actively intervene and try various things to see what, what effect they will have. We know that at least like this uh, drive to demonstrating empirically your theory might have come from Vincenzo. We'll be back to the Galileis later. First, I want to zoom out a little, because there were more interactions between science and music than just Vincenzo and Galileo in the workshop. As Vincenzo was making music into a science, science was busy turning to music for inspiration and ideas. Many people think that music is a kind of charming accompaniment to thought, that it, it is a kind of beautiful, consequence or side uh, product of other kinds of more serious rational thought. But developments in music have their own inner uh, coherence and logic and that they have an influence on other aspects of human thought that hasn't previously been realized. In other words, music affects how we think about other stuff. This isn't as out there as it might first sound. Until the mid-1600s at least, getting an education meant learning about four things. Arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. That was the curriculum. Here's Jim Bennett. He's a historian of science, just retired from London's Science Museum. So astronomy and music are, are bound together in all of their education. So it's a natural link to make. It isn't, it isn't as strange as, as, as we would think. And the relationship forged some productive links. So one of the first places where this idea came bore fruit was the idea that observing the periods of the planets, that uh, you could understand them in terms of ratios of numbers, and that there was some kind of numerical secret that was underlying the visible motions of the heavens. So whatever music taught you, you probably couldn't help but apply it to astronomy. This wasn't a new idea. Again, the Greeks got there first. They really liked the idea of harmony in the world. And where the planets were concerned, this idea is referred to as... The music of the spheres, this idea that somehow music and its mathematical relationships uh, are harmonic and those harmonies are somehow Im 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 
imposed on the uh, cosmos. Plenty of scholars took this idea and ran with it. Many tried to shoehorn their astronomical observations into harmonious frameworks that were beautiful, but wrong. Finally, in the early 1600s, someone gets somewhere. That was the astronomer Johannes Kepler. Unlike, say, Galileo, where there's a family background in music, we don't have that in, in Kepler. Um, Kepler's father, unlike Galileo's very respectable father, was a mercenary soldier and, according to Kepler, had criminal tendencies uh, and abandoned the family. His mother wasn't musical either. She, she had a very checkered and difficult career, was tried as a witch, for instance. So again, he, he didn't have a, a, a nurturing uh, family situation in the, in the, in the way uh, uh, Galileo did, but he was enormously talented. And he was enormously talented mathematically. And music, of course, is part of mathematics. Music is a mathematical discipline. So Kepler isn't unusual in finding connections between music and astronomy, but he does go further than most. And in his work, used music as a way of trying to find out not just the, the cosmic relations that had been known for millennia, but try to find out new relations that were possible because there were much more accurate observations of the positions and motions of the planets in his time than had ever happened before. He wrote a book called The Harmony of the World in 1619. The formal uh, uh, design elements that he discovered in aspects of the planetary motions could be expressed in musical notation. That's a very strong musical input, um, but it reaches, I think, its apex in Kepler, and I, I, I don't think anyone else really takes it quite so, uh, or cashes it out in the way Kepler does into astronomical content. No one else, for instance, wrote a song, a canon, which he felt expressed the planet's motions. Each planet gets its own tune, their movements cashed out into quavers and crotchets. And thanks to Peter Pesic for this rendition of Kepler's planetary canon. His, his songs all come from his observations, which he then turns into a musical notation and then translates into, into sounds. Kepler wants to discover the meaning, the mathematical meaning, the harmonic meaning that God has imposed on the world. It's very devotional, Kepler's astronomy. But all of that, although it might seem a bit alien to us now, uh, adds up to at least an inclination to look for music in the, in the planetary motions. Kepler's very unusual in looking like a, a, a mystic, if you like, talking like a mystic, but doing real astronomy. Kepler's obsession with music was late on in his scientific life. By the time he went fully musical at the end of his career, by the time he really started writing out planetary conjunctions as chords, by that time he wasn't really in need of getting anywhere. He was imperial mathematician in Prague. His reputation was such that, uh, well, he was known as a maverick. He could afford to spend time on left-field ideas. But did music really get him anywhere? Peter Pesic thinks so. He thinks that music helped Kepler come up with one of his three laws of planetary motion. His third law marks out the relationship between a planet's distance from the sun and the time it takes to orbit. Actually, music helped him. I think without music, he couldn't have discovered the, the third law, which is a relation between the periods and the, the, the radii of the revolution of planets. 
The fact that he was looking for a certain kinds of musical relations helped him to find it. If he hadn't been doing that, I don't think he would have found it, or it would have been very, very difficult for him to find it because it was not, no one else had noticed it, and it, uh, it, it became a kind of crucial element. Crucial indeed. Later the same century, Isaac Newton found that Kepler's law fit with his own laws of motion and gravitation. The movements of the heavens are nothing but a sort of perennial harmony wrote Kepler in his book The Harmony of the World. But he wasn't the only one for whom this musical idea of harmony was important. Astronomers everywhere were keen on it. When Copernicus hit upon his idea that the sun was at the centre of the universe, he was delighted with the newly harmonious portrait he'd made of the planets. What he discovers is that as you go out from the sun, they're all moving more slowly. Now, I don't just mean that the, the t periods are longer. That's understandable. They've got further to go. They've got a, a larger uh, sphere. But the spheres are actually all moving more slowly as you go out. So they get slower and slower and slower until you come to the fixed stars, which, of course, for Copernicus are stationary. So it's lovely. And he, he's just ecstatic about that. He thinks that's wonderful. And he says, there you have the, you know, the, the, the harmony that binds the whole, the whole structure together. So that's a more... Copernicus is more typical. He likes structure, he likes relationship, you know, he likes order and harmony. But there's something else. Harmony is kind of a static concept. Things are always harmonious. They always have been, they always will be. But around the time that Kepler and Copernicus and others are thinking about the music of the spheres, music itself starts to change. And that had its own effects on the science of the day. Until Copernicus, people generally assumed the Earth was fixed and the rest of the universe travelled around it. But if music was your analogy and music could change, what did that mean for the physical world you were comparing it to? This is a piece of music called De Profundis, written by the composer Joscan de Pre in the first half of the 16th century. Back with us, Peter Pesek. The basic problem was this, that both in astronomy and in music, there seemed to be a fixed center. In astronomy, in the Ptolemaic view, it was the Earth. The Earth was the fixed center. In music, it was the, the fundamental pitch of the mode. The mode was a fixed thing. A mode, in music, is basically the note you choose to centre your piece around. It's not quite the same as a key, but it does a similar job in that it can change the whole mood of a piece. And the thing that started to happen was that composers, first of all, started to imagine what might it be like if the centre, the earth as it were, of their composition could move, no longer be fixed, but allowed to do this impossible thing of moving. The composer Josquin Desprez actually wrote a composition, this De Profundis, in which the center of the composition moves from the Dorian D to the Phrygian E. You can hear how the composition moves from being centered at the beginning on D and then gradually 
at the, at the end, through a series of transformations and changes, finally ends up being centered on E, the Phrygian note. At the time, it was a very kind of radical musical idea that Josquin, of course, doesn't explain why he does this or doesn't link it with astronomy or anything like that, but everybody who was educated at the time would have known that the modes were associated each with a different planet. This seemed to me to be part of the prehistory of what was a crucial and very, very difficult concept, how the Earth, which seems to us absolutely immovable and solid, could ever move in some kind of space beyond itself. This first happened in music, and that it seems to me that to thoughtful people that were schooled in, as all educated people were at that time, in a system of education in which music was the sister of astronomy and of arithmetic and geometry, the connection, the parallel, would have been before them to see that if music could change and move its center, so could astronomy. People gradually began to realize that the world could move. If music could, why not the very world they lived in? So against this background, back to Galileo. How could music and his musical father have influenced his work? It seems pretty clear to me that the father and the son discussed many topics together, both musical and having to do with astronomy. And it seems likely also that their discussions went back and forth between them quite a lot. It was one of the places where my own work started because I was fascinated with these stories about Vincenzo and I wanted to find out and I was a little disappointed that there wasn't more hard evidence that would enable me to find out what really happened. But I did find out one thing which was very, very surprising, which was that uh, Vincenzo is one of the first Italians who speaks in favor of the Copernican heliocentric universe at a time, about 1580, when First of all, Copernicus's book was not very well known in Italy at all. More copies seem to have been distributed through the German lands. And um, also when it was highly controversial. But Vincenzo, there is one sentence in his book when he speaks in favor of the sun being the center and gives a kind of musical argument for that. Um, so it could be that Galileo Galilei first heard about this crazy idea from his father. But as Jim Bennett points out, it wasn't like Galileo followed in his dad's footsteps exactly. I would say that Galileo's career, while he's, um, he's influenced by Vincenzo at an early stage and, and that takes him into mathematics, he also wants to move away from that and be better than his dad. Galileo launched for himself a different career path, away from music and theory and towards natural philosophy, studying not just patterns in the world, but why there are patterns in the world. Quite different from dad then. Except for that one thing, those acoustical experiments that Vincenzo was doing with the strings and the weights. Vincenzo's also interested in physical experimentation in relation to music. So he has acoustical experiments and so on later in his career, I understand. That sounds a bit more natural, philosophical to me. We don't have any definite proof. This is historian Marina Baldessera Pacchetti again. So we don't have any 
direct references from Galileo to Vincenzo's work. There is one very strong point of, of correspondence that is Vincenzo's experiment or experience with the, the weights and the tension of the string and Galileo's uh, experiment with the pendulum in which he finds that the oscillations of the pendulum are proportional to the square root of the tension of the string and therefore the weight that is attached to the string. This is a relation that Vincenzo had found uh, when he found that you need to square the, the weight to get an octave. Galileo's pendulum experiments led him to propose several theories on how objects move, a prelude to the laws of mechanics developed by Isaac Newton. But that wasn't the only influence that music had on him. Galileo used lute frets as a way to measure distance. And since he couldn't measure time with a stopwatch, his notebooks suggest he used the regular beat of a song he knew to measure elapsed time. Wouldn't that make Dad proud? But there's one important characteristic of Galileo's efforts that Vincenzo's lacked, a point of dissonance between the two. Galileo says that he does his experiments repeated, like repeated times, so many times. So that is one characteristic of Galileo's work that makes him a scientist in the modern sense. Um, Vincenzo only does his experiment once. What is clear is that music hardened into a science around this time and that the Galileos played their parts. During that time, around 1600, and through people like the Galileis, uh, music went from being a, a study that was about abstract ratios to uh, the study of actual vibrating bodies in which what was going on was a physical phenomenon more than um, I don't know what, a celestial visitor, uh, a mathematical visitor that somehow mysteriously has become physically present. This trend, looking at the physical and finding the laws behind it, certainly stuck around. As has become clear over now the many centuries since then, the way physics progresses at least is very often people will try various visionary schemes and some will work and some won't but the the essential project of trying to find a kind of mathematical uh, order behind the visible phenomena that seems to have worked the, the larger project seems to have worked out very well and I guess my contention is that people learned how to do that from the possibility of joining the two in the example of music, which they all knew, which was both mathematical and physical in a certain way. That that was the first place where it became clear uh, that this was even possible. I suppose at a very fundamental level, that old Pythagorean insight, if you like, hammers and anvils related to the weight of the, uh, of the hammer and so on, all semi-mythical stories, I know, but nonetheless, that insight, which plausibly came from music, that um, the world has a mathematical blueprint, is fundamental to, to science. It seems to me that the fundamental project of modern science remains as it was somehow to musicalize the world. So do you think that we should train modern day scientists to be more musical or we might miss out? I wouldn't presume to say that as a humble historian, but it, 
it would be good for them, certainly, yeah. They'd be happy, happier. <laughs> <laughs>